Hi, you're listening to the sermon recording podcast of Awaken Church. Awaken is a church of missional communities whose vision is to see individuals experience healing through the gospel, be raised to their fullest potential among community, and sent out to live a life on mission. You can find out more online at awakenvb.com. And if you live in Hampton Roads, we invite you to check out our worship gathering in the Haygood area of Virginia Beach, Saturday evenings at 5 p.m. Thank you for listening. Amen. Good evening. How's everyone doing? Good, good. Glad you guys are hanging out with us tonight. Uh, again, my name is Philip. Well, maybe not again. Maybe you didn't know that. But uh, my name is Philip. I'm one of the pastors here at Awaken Church. We are uh, in the middle of a series called Kings and Kingdoms. It's an Old Testament series that we are doing. Um, and it's been really, uh, I've gotten a lot of great feedback from you guys really enjoying this. So um, glad that you're here tonight. If you ever miss a week, by the way, this is a quick reminder both through Apple Music uh, Podcast as well as through Spotify. You can always subscribe to Awaken Church Podcast, listen to it there online as well. Some of you guys serve in Forge Kids or you're in and out with work at times, and so I would just encourage you to stay connected to us that way if that's uh, something that you aren't already doing. So uh, I'm just going to jump right in tonight and kind of go over what we're talking about. Uh, it would be, uh, we would be remiss to not talk about King David uh, in the midst of talking really through the series of Kings and Kingdoms. If you were here last week for our family gathering, we kind of did a part one story. We talked about David and Goliath, this teenage boy who uh, basically takes on this giant. It's a pretty well-known story used a lot in sports analogies of the David and the Goliath story. But we talked about it through the lens of not reading ourselves into these stories. And the reason being is really because if we're not careful, we begin to take on the embodiment of the hero of the story, when in reality, the hero, David, and that story of David and Goliath, is a foreshadowing of what Jesus does for us on the cross. It's not our story, it's his story. And as a reminder of that, the Goliath is not our obstacles, but rather sin and division that we end up understanding that Jesus conquers in the process for us. And so, anyway, it's a great reminder for us to see these overcoming stories throughout the, the, uh, the Hebrew scriptures in the Old Testament, but it's something that we, I think someone's going to be reminded of that we want to overcome these things, but in reality, God has done that for us through his son, Jesus. So I want to do kind of the, the more uh, expanded version of King David tonight. We're going to talk about one part of the story pri uh, primarily, but I want to kind of just give you a really quick overview of life of David, kind of birth to death, and then we're going to hone in on one part in particular. So King David, probably again, the most renowned king in Israel's history, was anointed as a boy, youngest in his family, uh, kind of the stereotypical freckle-faced, red-headed castaway in his family, shepherd boy, and as a teenager would then have this epic moment in his life of uh, be, being you know, thrown into the situation of the David and the Goliath story, uh, killing Goliath, and then kind of gets promoted very, very fast into positions of leadership within Saul's army and basically becomes a commander in Saul's army. So this teenager uh, throughout his late teens is probably the most well-known figure in, at this period of time within the Hebrew people. Uh, has a lot of success, a lot of popularity. Pretty much everywhere he goes, people know who David is. And on top of that, he's incredibly successful. God's hand is clearly on him as a warrior. In the process, he is definitely someone who is uh, leaning heavily into God's provision in his life. And so he's kind of got it all going for him pretty well as this teenager, right? Think about maybe where you and I were at as a teenager, right? I mean, uh, here's a, a young man 
uh, not even you know, old enough to drink according to our standards, right? And he has found success in the military campaigns as well as really staying close to the Lord in the process. Saul becomes angry. If you were here uh, two weeks ago, Kai talked about King Saul, the first king in the process. And because of, of King Saul's lack of uh, desire to really pursue God fully and how his heart was really hollow in the process, God said, hey, the lineage of the kingdom of, of Israel will not come from your family. And so that's kind of how we brought David into the story with him being anointed in the process. So basically, Saul begins to find any way and every way possible to try and kill David in the midst of it. David kind of forms his own little band of merry men. Uh, and in the process of that, these quote-unquote Navy SEALs protect David wherever he goes. And they, these are the best of the best, the elite warriors that believe in David, want him to stay safe. And so wherever they go, they are literally protecting David, keeping him out of harm in the process. Eventually, at the age of 23 years old, Saul has passed away. David, at 23 years old, becomes the king of Israel. And so in this process, we see a 23-year-old young man who spends probably the next seven years primarily of his life continuing on these military campaigns, establishing the borders of Israel. Uh, he fights a lot of battles, primarily with the Philistines who keep coming back and, and forth in the process. You read a lot about these other tribes and nations that are constantly knocking on the doors of Israel, uh, if you were to list them out, there's a bunch of ites, right? The Moabites and the Ammonites and all, these, all the ites, right? So he's constantly fighting all the ites in the process. And then on top of that, he's also trying to establish this, uh, this new kingdom, right? Because Saul didn't really do a great job. He was kind of in it for his own gain. Um, and, and as Kai talked about two weeks ago, did not walk in, in God's best for him. And so not only is David doing what he's always done well, which is leading successful military campaigns, he's also establishing this new government rule and reign and, and trying to align himself with the Lord and his direction while also you know, setting up this civil government in the process. This is all happening while David, again, is in his late 20s, early 30s. And so uh, just to stop the story for a second. So right about this time in his early 30s, David has had incredible success in fact, most of the psalms that you read about that are written from a very positive, endearing light are probably penned during an author during David's first 40 years of his life. A lot of success, and God chooses to basically say, from this point forward, all of the kings of Israel will come from the lineage of David. And so every king from this point forward begins to, to come from David's family in the process. Eventually, uh, David has some, some massive problems. In fact, for all the great success that David has out on the battlefield and in leading the country, the harsh reality is that David did a really poor job of being a father, a husband, and leading his personal life well. And in fact, I, I don't know about you, I, I grew up being a part of the church, and I've always heard the phrase, right, David is a man after God's own heart. It's a very well-known phrase, usually attached right to David's name. It's kind of like it's his last name in many ways is how I, how I remember hearing it. And I, don't, I know that David has some, some speed bumps, if you will, but it really hasn't been until my adult life of really studying the Hebrew Scriptures and the Old Testament that I begin to understand there are some massive problems in David's life, especially in his personal life. So David had numerous wives. Uh, in fact, one of the stories that we highlighted a few weeks ago when I kind of did the intro week is there's a story of David has a daughter named Tamar. 
And Tamar is raped by her half-brother, one of David's other wives' sons, in the process. That, David doesn't do anything, by the way, when he hears about the situation. So one of his daughters is raped by her half-brother, David, the father of both of these children, does nothing in the process. Absalom, the brother of Tamar, David's son as well, obviously, takes matters into his own hands, kills the son, the half-brother, and then flees because David gets upset. All of a sudden, David cares about the process, right? And so he leaves. Then Absalom tries to overthrow David, builds his own little miniature army, tries to come back in, overthrow King David in the process. And then David's right-hand man, Joab, basically is the one who takes out Absalom in the process. This happens, and this isn't even the main part of the story tonight, right? There's massive dysfunction within the family that David has. Eventually, David begins to uh, have a desire to kind of clean his life up towards the end of his life. And we'll talk about that a little bit tonight. And he desires to basically, he's already uh, taken back over the city of Jerusalem, built a temple there. Uh, The city of Jerusalem is referred to as the city of David. And he moves the Ark of the Covenant back to Jerusalem where it belongs and begins to say that he wants to build a temple for the Lord. And God says, look, you're not going to build a temple. That's for Solomon, who we'll talk about next week, to build. But you're not going to build it. But you can help prepare the process. So David pretty much does a lot of the legwork to get the temple ready towards the end of his life, collecting all the money, materials, and resources needed to build the temple. But because of the lack of order, really, that David had in his personal life and in his family life, this is one of the biggest reasons why he was not able to, to help be a part of the process to really build the temple and see that in its fruition during his lifetime. David dies by the age of 70. And so uh, towards really the end of his life is where you see a lot of these psalms of lament that take place. I would love it if, uh, if you would need a really good director, not, um, yeah, what we'll say, you need a really good director uh, to probably do like a, an HBO miniseries on Life of David, like a 10-part like, well-done series, and, uh, man, the life of David is just full of so many things, uh, and it would be uh, a rated mature, by the way, because uh, that's the life of David, in case you weren't aware, and you've already got the soundtrack built in, right? You just take the Psalms, put them to a well-known composer, and, like, you have the soundtrack and the life of David all put together, so I'm sure someone that's not my favorite would ever do that, and they would make it terrible, and I would hate it, but that would be an amazing story to tell accurately the life of David because it is full of so many things in the process that honestly we don't talk a whole lot about as a church. The thing that I want to talk about tonight is the story of David and Bathsheba. Uh, I've been in the church for 32 years of my life. I've never once heard a sermon on David and Bathsheba. I've heard them mentioned, I've heard them referenced in a story, but I've never heard a whole message on kind of this part of David's life. And so uh, the, the goal tonight for me is to kind of unpack a few different parts of the story that I think we can learn a lot from in the process. So if you have a Bible, the story of David is kind of told through 1st, 2nd Samuel, and 1st Chronicles. We're in 2nd Samuel tonight, chapter 11, and we're going to read the first few verses together, and then we're going to kind of bounce around a little bit. So if you have a Bible app or you want to follow along, we're in 2nd uh, Samuel, chapter 11, starting in verse 1, and I'm reading out of the New Living Translation up here on the screen. You can read along with me if you want. It says, in the spring of the year, when kings normally go out to war, David sent Job, his right-hand man, and the Israelite army to fight the Ammonites. They destroyed the Ammonite army and laid siege to the city of Rabbah. However, David stayed behind in Jerusalem. Late one afternoon, after his midday rest, which is awesome, by the way, right? Like, it's a normal thing for a king to, like, have a nap in the afternoon. Like, you know, that would be nice. So, if one day, if you're a king of a country, 
you can build into your schedule a nap every day, right? Wouldn't that be awesome? All right, cool. Uh, David got out of his bed and was walking on the roof of his palace. Tough life. And he looked over the city, and he noticed a woman of unusual beauty taking a bath. He sent someone to find out where she, uh, found out who she was, and he was told she is Bathsheba, the daughter of Elam, and the wife of Uriah, the Hittite. Then David sent messengers to get her, and when she came to the palace, he slept with her. I'm going to skip this part and just say she was ovulating, and then she returned home. Keep going. Perfect. Later, when Bathsheba discovered she was pregnant, she, said to, she sent David a message saying, I'm pregnant. All right, so first five verses. A couple things important to note here, okay? Number one, David's not where he's supposed to be in the story. So chapter 11 begins that everyone else goes out as normal routine for a king. So most of the military campaigns that took place during this period of time, culturally, took place in the spring and the summer. No one's fighting in the fall. Everyone's harvesting crops. No one's fighting in the winter. They're bunkered down, right? So for the most part, there's not this like surprise attack deal where like people are getting attacked in the winter and the fall. Most campaigns took place in the spring and the fall. It was very customary, as the ritual goes, for a king to ride out to battle with his army. Now, he's not the front line guy, right? He's probably hanging out in the tent behind the scenes, but he goes out to battle with them in the process. At this point in David's life, and you can kind of tell from the way the story is beginning to go, David has become complacent. David has become comfortable. In fact, he said, look, I've done all these great things. I've had a lot of success. You know what? This year, I'm going to stay behind in the process. So he stays behind and he sends out his army in the process. He says, look, these guys will be easy. You can take them out in the process. I'm going to hang back. So the first thing about the story is that David is not where he normally was or where he should have been in this part of the story. The second thing we read about in the story is that obviously in the process, David's allowing his eyes to wander. He goes up to the roof, begins to look around, and he notices a woman of unusual beauty, it says. Now, it's not, not wrong to you know, say, oh, that's an attractive person, right? What happens is he allows lust to take over his heart in the process. And the reason why, one of the biggest reasons why David engages in this action that we're about to see and unfolding in this story is, again, because he is not staying close with the Lord. He's not where he's supposed to be in the process. Now, Bathsheba's not raped. She comes to the temple, and maybe because he's the king, or maybe they have a bond, right, whatever it is, but they sleep together in the process, she gets pregnant. So at this point in the story, David's not where he's supposed to be. He lusts after a woman. And then the part of the story which is very, very important to remember is that once David sends the messenger out and the messenger comes back and tells David who she is, David should have stopped right there and said, hold on a second, that's not okay. Right? Ladies, you have this thing called girl code, right? right? You don't date someone, someone else has been dating, right? Guy code, we don't really know what that is, but in this situation, girl code would apply to the guys, meaning he should not be sleeping with the main military warrior in his army who's out to fight his battle right now, right? Uriah is one of those Navy SEALs that I referred to at the, at the beginning of the story. Uriah has been literally defending David's life for most of David's military campaigns, when Saul was trying to kill David, Uriah literally saved his life. And so here is a man who has a lot of personal history with David. 
And so when David finds out that this is Uriah's wife, that should be plenty enough for beyond the lust and temptation that he feels to be like, all right, not going to be okay here, right? But again, David is comfortable, complacent, and I 100% believe that he has gotten to the point in this part of his heart where he's callous. He is not sensitive to what God is doing in his life at this moment. There are two words that I use a lot of times in my personal life that I uh, desire to be held accountable to and I encourage people to do as well, and it's to be clean and close. Clean speaking to just the purity of like how we maintain a pure heart in the process, but close and how we stay close to the Lord. David's not doing either of those two things in this moment in his life. He's not staying clean, and he's not drawing close to the Lord. And as a result, he sleeps with this woman, she gets pregnant, and then to make matters worse, they begin to plan a cover-up. The cover-up is, is basically this. He's going to send for Uriah to come back and say, look, man, hey, you've done such a great job. You deserve a few days off for vacation. Come on back in and uh, hang out with your family, spend some time with your wife. You deserve it. And hoping that basically they would sleep together, cover up the pregnancy, she would have the baby. Everyone would think it's Uriah's. No big deal. Well, Uriah, a righteous man, says, hey, my guys are out here on battle. I'm not leaving them. I'm going to stay out here with them. I'm not coming in. He defies David's wishes for him to come back to the city. It pisses David off. He's irritated. And they say, all right, we've got to go plan B. What's plan B? They begin to plan. Basically, the prophecy sends a message out to Job, again, his right-hand military leader. It says, send Uriah to the front lines, basically, and pull your army back, creating a suicide mission where Uriah would eventually die. So if we stop here in the story, David is not where he's supposed to be. He's lusted after a woman. He's slept with this woman. He's impregnated this woman. And he has now murdered her husband. David, a man after God's own heart. Now, if I stop this for a second in the story, if you've heard this story before or you're you know, someone who's grown up in church, it's very easy to become numb to these stories. And the reason why I want to stop here for a second is because the Bible is, especially in the Hebrew Scriptures, is full of these kind of stories. Let's just think of a few popular names in the Old Testament that you've heard of. Noah, Moses, Abraham, Jacob. All of these popular figures have had massive sin and failure in their life at one point or time or another. And yet God still chooses to use them in the process of building his kingdom and being a part of the story of what God was doing. But these people we read about as if they're, you know, characters in a play or a, a fictional novel that we're reading about, and we just kind of breeze through it. If you were to apply this story to modern day, 21st century, the world that we live in today, if a president, pastor, leader of any kind did any of these things we're talking about tonight, you and I would say they're not fit to lead. We would say that they're not supposed to be in leadership. They're obviously not clean and close. They're not walking with the Lord. If they're a political figure, hey, you obviously don't have our best interest in heart. You only are looking out for yourself in the process, right? Regardless of where these people were, we would say they are not qualified to keep doing what they're doing. And so as a, as a, a Christ follower, when I read this story, I, I kind of get upset that God allows David to keep doing what he's doing, to be honest with you. Like, God, why are you still using this guy? Can't you see that he's not doing what you've asked him to do? And that's because my heart 
as a 21st century Christ follower is I am quick to judge other people. And it's okay, I'm up here with the mic, so I'll say it, but we all do it, right? But it's okay, I'll have my personal confession moment, but we all do it, right? We're all judging other people. And the reality is, this is part of why the church has become such a polarized and divisive vehicle in which is used in the culture today. Because we should be one of those people that says, look, our story, the very narrative of Scripture, is full of people who screw things up royally and God still uses them. We should be the biggest ambassadors of mercy, compassion, and grace. Instead, we're one of the first ones that says, let's stone that guy and let's get someone else in here. Let's cast them to the side. We'll find someone else in the process. Man, if God is a king of love and grace and mercy, and yes, there are consequences for our sin, and we're going to keep talking through the story here, but why are we so quick in these moments to cast judgment instead of finding out, hey, where are you at, and how can we walk through this together? I've said this before, and I think this is absolutely applicable in the rest of the story we're about to read, that God is not only interested in what we do. I think God does care what we do, so don't mishear me, but God cares way more about our heart and our presence with each other. So the reason why these people stay in the positions that God uses them is because their hearts are shifted in the story. Right? If, if David's heart stayed this way, I think we would not describe him as a man after God's own heart. But David's heart shifted, and it's primarily through the vehicle of a man named Nathan. Now, in this day and age, David is the king. He is judge, king, leader. He does it all. So Nathan is a prophet. So he's kind of got to be careful about how he handles himself because he doesn't want to piss off the king, right? Very important. But at the same time, God has revealed to Nathan, the prophet, what David has done. And so Nathan, Nathan goes to David, and he says, David, let me tell you a story. Hey, there's this man who uh, basically he has this lamb, and he takes this lamb, the special lamb, right? The lamb that is special to the family. And uh, he, he kills the lamb, and then basically accuses it, accuse, or he's accused of saying, actually, this is the nice cow that we have actually out back instead. Tells a lie, right? Covers it up in the process. And so Nathan says to David, hey, what should we do with this guy who lied and covered up what he said? And David says, hey, bring him here. We're going we're gonna to get some justice for, for this guy. You know, we're going to make sure that it's exposed. Uh, he begins to actually talk about the fact that, you know, hey, maybe we should even like kill this guy for what he did. I mean, harsh, right? And David said, who is this man? And Nathan goes, David, it's you. You are this man. And what makes the story really important, listen to me, guys, this is what makes it really important. The heart of David is not defensive. He doesn't try and cover it up. He's caught in his sin, accused of what he's done. And in front of Nathan, he says, I have sinned. And so I want to read you the part of the story here where they kind of interact together. It's, uh, let's see here, 2 Samuel 12 and it's kind of the first part, uh, verse 13. Then David confesses to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan replied, yes, but the Lord has forgiven you. Leave it up there for a second for me, Heather. So David confesses, I have sinned against the Lord. 
And I love Nathan's response. We're going to come back to this at the end of the message. But yet, but the Lord has forgiven you. There's a couple of key things that I've kind of, as I read through the story, that I thought were really important for us to kind of take away. So I want to go back to the beginning part of the story here and just remember the life of David, right? The first thing I want to give you tonight is that the anointing of David and the anointing over our life doesn't keep us from temptation. God anoints us as his children, right? You and I are sons and daughters of the king of the universe. And just because you and I are anointed as his children does not remove us or exempt us from temptation in our life. David was not clean and close. He wasn't aware of what God, he wasn't aware of the temptation lurking because his eyes weren't open to it. He had become cold and callous in his heart. Number two, the blessings that we see in our lives do not keep us from sin. David had been incredibly successful, prosperous, finding success anywhere he went as a young man. He had everything, and honestly, if he had asked for anything, the Lord would have given to him. But yet, it did not keep him from sin. And the reminder here that I left with that process is that our obedience to the Lord is what keeps us from that. Now, it doesn't mean that you're going to be removed from sin in every situation, right? But what it means is that we have these like 12 pathways that we walk in as a church. We talk about them regularly. If you're walking in these 12 pathways, it's not going to keep you exempt from sin or keep you away from temptation, but I guarantee you, you will be able to identify it, see it coming, and when it does commence your life, your heart and your posture will be totally different because you have accountability, you have relationships with people, you have worship to orient your life back around God, you have, you have a prayer life to begin to ask the Lord to cover you in that process, you have scriptures to speak truth over your life, you have a gathering of community to be around, you have people in relationships who know you well and you know them well. All of these pathways begin to, when woven together, help keep us walking in the obedience of what God has for us. Now again, it's, it's not foolproof, it's not going like to prevent bad things from happening. But I promise you, if David had been walking in those 12 pathways regularly in his life, in this story, these things would not have happened. He would have been where he's supposed to be. He may have been attracted to Bathsheba, but he would not have acted upon that in the process. He would not have impregnated her, slept with her, obviously, and he wouldn't have committed murder or tried to cover it all up in the process. Sin is a funny thing. I think it's something that a lot of times, if we're not careful, it begins to master our lives. There's a story in the Old Testament, right, of Adam and Eve. You've probably heard of them before. They have two sons, Cain and Abel. And I want to read you a verse here, Genesis chapter 4, speaking directly to this idea of sin and how it masters us if we're not careful. It says, You will be accepted if you do what is right, but if you refuse to do what is right, then watch out. Sin is crouching at the door, eager to control you, but you must subdue it and be its master. Very simple. If you're not actively trying to master the sin in your life through the power of the Holy Spirit, because we can't do it on our own, right? We, hopefully you know that by now, right? Because if you're like me, I've tried numerous times. I keep getting it wrong, right? And the only way I ever find success with the temptations or trials in my life is when I get out of the way and allow the power of the Holy Spirit to come in and do some work in my heart. 
100% of the time, that's the only way it works for me. But sin will continue to master me if I keep trying to do things on my own. In the story of Cain and Abel, Cain takes matters into his own hands, and in the process of trying to control everything, sin masters his life. I want to leave you with one final thought tonight before we read the final psalm that David writes in this process. Tim Keller, a well-known author, tells the story this way in regards to sin. He says, think about it this way. Think about an acorn, right? The acorn represents the sin. And he has this quote, I just want to read it to you. It's a whole lot easier to squash an acorn than it is to bring down an oak tree. And he references this in regards to our sin. So often we wait for the acorns to become trees to eventually become this giant oak tree right in the process. And they were like, oh wait, time out, there's a problem, right? There's a big oak tree in my yard. And Keller, in this analogy of the acorns and the oak tree, basically explains it this way. How are you and I looking in our life, discovering the things that eventually will take root? You can identify them through jealousy, anger, you can identify them through insecurities in your life. As you look around the yard of your life, if you will, where are those acorns at that eventually will lead to oak trees if you don't deal with them? In David's life, he had allowed these acorns to eventually come into his life that became, that be, that became these oak trees, right? Massive problems. And it's so easy for us to identify the big billboard sins in the story. But the sin in the story doesn't originate from murder and adultery. The sin originates from a man who wasn't staying clean and close. The acorns in his life had not been identified and dealt with. One of the consequences of David's life in this story is that there's a baby that obviously we read about, right? And that baby dies after seven days being born to Bathsheba. In the process, David writes this psalm. It's, in my opinion, personal preference here, probably the most powerful psalm I, for me that I've ever read out of all the psalms. It's the one that speaks to me the most. And I want to read it for you tonight. And it's going to be up on the screen if you want to follow along. But I honestly would ask you to close your eyes. I want you to hear this psalm tonight because for you and I, I don't know where you're at in this story. Maybe some of you need to be reminded of the fact that God will still use you in the midst of the things that are happening. Because at the end of the story, before we read this psalm, one thing for you that's important for you to remember is that the very next thing that happens in this story is that David and Bathsheba get married, and Bathsheba gives birth to another son. That son is Solomon. See, God could have chosen any number of Dave, David's eight wives to cause the lineage to come from for Jesus. If you fast forward a thousand years, another king is born with a bunch of hay in a stable. If you cast, if you, if you kind of go backwards in time, Jesus' lineage is connected to the same woman in this story. You see, I don't know if it's a sin issue for you tonight in regards to something obvious that God wants to, to get out of your life, that there needs to be, you know, the, the, the chainsaw that comes in and cuts down the, the, ache, the oak tree in the process. 
Or maybe it's a reminder to start collecting some of these acorns that you and I identify as problems. There are things that right now you can identify are keeping you away from being clean and close with the Lord. But in the midst of it all, the hope of the story is that if you have a heart like David does, of confession, of repentance, and you are willing to walk in the forgiveness that God has for you, even if there are consequences for your sin, if you are willing to walk in that, God says, I have come to overcome it all. Jesus can overcome it all. Even in the story of David and Bathsheba. So I want you to read this with me. Psalm 51. Again, if you want to close your eyes, feel free to. David writes, Have mercy on me, O God, because of your unfailing love, because of your great compassion, blot out the stain of my sins. Wash me clean from my guilt, purified me from my sin for I recognize my rebellion it haunts me day and night against you and you alone have I sinned I have done what is evil in your sight you will be proved right in what you say your judgment against me is just for I was born a sinner yes from the moment that my mother conceived me but you desire honesty from the womb, teaching me wisdom even there. Purify me from my sins and I will be clean. Wash me and I will be whiter than snow. Oh, give me back my joy again. You have broken me. Now let me rejoice. Don't keep looking at my sin. Remove the stain of my guilt. Create in me a clean heart, oh God, and renew a loyal spirit within me. Do not banish me from your presence and do not take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and make me willing to obey you. Then I will teach your ways to rebels and they will return to you. Forgive me for shedding blood, O God who saves. Then I will joyfully sing of your forgiveness. Unseal my lips, O Lord, that my mouth may praise you. You do not desire a sacrifice, or I would offer one. You do not want a burnt offering. The sacrifice you desire is a broken spirit. You will not reject a broken and repentant heart, O God. That word, that truth that Nathan says to David, that God has forgiven you, comes to fruition in our story through the power of Jesus and the cross. But the message that David leaves us with in the midst of his darkest hours is one that teaches us that God cares more about what happens on the inside in the transformation process. He knows we're going to get it wrong. God knows that you and I are going to have, whether it's a speed bump or massive failings in our life, And this isn't a get-out-of-jail-free card or an excuse for us to keep on doing those things because the heart of this story is David's heart. The reason why David is called a man after God's own heart is because David, in this moment, his darkest hour, realigns his heart with God and says, create in me a new heart. Restore in my life the joy that only you can give. Remind me of your salvation. Make me white as snow. 
David says, I'm not, I know that you're not interested in my church attendance, my giving, or the things that I would do as offerings. You're interested in my heart. And so regardless of where are you or I in this story, I want the truth tonight that you take away from this message to be a reminder that, one, God can use everything, even the darkest hours of your life that you are ashamed of. God will use those things if you allow your heart to be aligned with his heart, if you allow transformation to take place, and if you're willing to repent and change. Let's pray. God, tonight as a church, there are so many times where I know in my own life, and maybe in our life as a church, where we think that we're above it. I think back to a message that Connie preached a few months ago about how dangerous it is to think that we are above certain sins. And God, I know in my own life, as you've pricked in and, and brought me to a place of just being aware of my own sin, that there are plenty of times where that is my sin. My sin is pride, that I'm above it all. And so God, tonight I repent of those things. And God, I pray that over people in this room as well. I pray that for my brothers and sisters in this room, God, God you would continue to remove the calluses from our hearts, that you would bring us closer to you, that you would clean us in the process that you are a God of grace, compassion, and love. And that, God, you choose to meet us right where we are. And what you're after is a heart transplant. So, God, tonight, I pray that you would meet us where we are. Transform our hearts. Realign us back to you. God, you do your best work in the midst of my mess in our mess. Help me just to get out of the way and let your Holy Spirit work in the powerful ways that he does. In Jesus' name, amen.